Chapter Twenty Five of *The Girl and the Golden Atom* by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Escape of Targo. I'm very much afraid it was a wrong move," said the chemist gravely. They were sitting in a corner of the roof, talking over the situation. Lilda had left the city. The last they had seen of her, she was striding rapidly away over the country towards Orlog. The street and field before the house was now nearly deserted. She had to do it, of course, the chemist continued, but to kill Targo's brother. I wonder, began the big business man thoughtfully, it seems to me this disturbance is becoming far more serious than we think. It isn't so much a political issue now between your government and the followers of Targo, as it is a struggle against those of us who have this magic, as they call it. That's just the point, put in the doctor quickly. They are making the people believe that our power of changing size is a menace that... If I had only realized, said the chemist, I thought your coming would help. Apparently, it was the very worst thing that could have happened. Not for you personally, interjected the very young man. We're perfectly safe, and Lilda and Lotto. He put his arm affectionately around the boy, who sat close beside him. "'You are not afraid, are you, Lotto?' "'No, I am not,' answered the boy seriously. "'But this morning, when I left my grandfather coming home—' "'You were afraid for your mother. That was it, wasn't it?' finished the very young man. "'Does your grandfather teach you?' "'Yes, he and father and mother.' "'I want you to see Lilda's father,' said the chemist. There is nothing we can do now until Lilda returns. Shall we walk up there? They all agreed readily. I may go, too? Lotto asked, looking at his father. You have your lessons, said the chemist. But, my father, it is so very lonely without mother, protested the boy. The chemist smiled gently. Afraid, little son, to stay with Oteo? He's not afraid, said the very young man stoutly. The little boy looked from one to the other of them a moment silently. Then, calling Oteo's name, he ran across the roof and down into the house. Five years ago, said the chemist, as the child disappeared, there was hardly such an emotion in this world as fear or hate or anger. Now the pendulum is swinging to the other extreme. I suppose that's natural, but... He ended with a sigh, and breaking his train of thought, rose to his feet. Shall we start? Lilda's father greeted them gravely, with a dignity and yet obvious cordiality that was quite in accord with his appearance. He was a man over sixty. His still luxuriant white hair fell to his shoulders. His face was hairless, for in this land all men's faces were as devoid of hair as those of the women. He was dressed in a long, flowing robe, similar to those his visitors were wearing. "'Because you come, I am glad,' he said with a smile, as he shook hands in their own manner. He spoke slowly, with frequent pauses, as though carefully picking his words. "'But, an old man, I know not the language of you.' He led them into a room that evidently was his study, for in it, they saw many strange instruments, and on a table a number of loosely bound sheets of parchment, 
that were his books. They took the seats he offered and looked around them curiously. "'There is the clock we spoke of,' said the chemist, indicating one of the larger instruments that stood on a pedestal in a corner of the room. "'Rio will explain it to you.' Their host addressed the chemist. "'From Oteo, I hear, the news today is bad,' he asked with evident concern. "'I'm afraid it is,' the chemist answered seriously. "'And Lilda?' The chemist recounted briefly the events of the day. We can only wait until Lilda returns, he finished. Tomorrow we will talk with the king. Bad it is, said the old man slowly, very bad, but we shall see. The very young man had risen to his feet and was standing beside the clock. How does it work, he asked. What time is it now? Rio appealed to his son-in-law. Tell of it, the words I not know. The chemist smiled. You are too modest, my father, but I will help you out if you insist. He turned to the others, who were gathered around him, looking at the clock. Our measurement of time here, he began, like yours, is based on... Excuse me, interrupted the very young man. I just want to know first what time it is now. It is in the fourth eclipse, said the chemist with a twinkle. The very young man was too surprised by this unexpected answer to question further, and the chemist went on. We measure time by the astronomical movements, just as you do in your world. One of the larger stars has a satellite which revolves around it with extreme rapidity. Here, at A-Rite, this satellite passes nearly always directly behind its controlling star. In other words, it is eclipsed. Ten of these eclipses measure the passage of our day. We rise generally at the first eclipse, or about that time. It is now the fourth eclipse. You would call it late afternoon. Do you see? How is the time gauged here? asked the big businessman, indicating the clock. The instrument stood upon a low stone pedestal. It consisted of a transparent cylinder about twelve inches in diameter and some four feet high, surmounted by a large circular bowl. The cylinder was separated from the bowl by a broad disk of porous stone. A similar stone section divided the cylinder horizontally into halves. From the bowl a fluid was dropping in a tiny stream through the top stone segment into the upper compartment, which was now about half full. This, in turn, filtered through the second stone into the lower compartment. This lower section was marked in front with a large number of fine horizontal lines, an equal distance apart, but of unequal length. In it, the fluid stood now just above one of the longer lines, the fourth from the bottom. On the top of this fluid floated a circular disk almost the size of the inside diameter of the cylinder. The chemist explained, It is really very much like the old hourglass we used to have in your world. This filters liquid instead of sand. You will notice the water filters twice. He indicated the two compartments. That is because it is necessary to have a liquid that is absolutely pure in order that the rate at which it filters through this other stone 
may remain constant. The clock is carefully tested so that for each eclipse the water will rise in this lower part of the cylinder just the distance from here to here. The chemist put his fingers on two of the longer marks. Very ingenious, remarked the doctor. Is it accurate? Not so accurate as your watches, of course, the chemist answered, but still it serves the purpose. These ten longer lines you see mark the ten eclipses that constitute one of our days. The shorter lines between indicate halves and quarter intervals. Then it is only good for one day, asked the very young man. How do you set it? It resets automatically each day at the beginning of the first eclipse. This disk, the chemist pointed to the disk floating on the water in the lower compartment. This disk rises with the water on which it is floating. When it reaches the top of it, it comes in contact with a simple mechanism. You see it up there, which opens a gate below and drains out the water in a moment so that every morning it is emptied and starts filling up again. All that is needed is to keep this bowl full of water. It certainly seems very practical, observed the big businessman. Are there many in use? Quite a number, yes. This clock was invented by Rio some thirty years ago. He is the greatest scientist and scholar we have. The old man smiled deprecatingly at this compliment. "'Are these books?' asked the very young man. He had wandered over to the table and was fingering one of the bound sheets of parchment. "'They are Rio's Chronicles,' the chemist answered. "'The only ones of their kind in A-Rite.' "'What's this?' the very young man pointed to another instrument. "'That is an astronomical instrument, something like a sextant, also an invention of Rio's. Here is a small telescope, and—' The chemist paused and went over to another table standing at the side of the room. "'That reminds me, gentlemen,' he continued. "'I have something here in which you will be greatly interested.' "'What you will see,' said Rio softly, as they gathered around the chemist, "'you only, of all people, can understand. Each day I look, and I wonder, but never can I quite believe.' I made this myself nearly ten years ago, said the chemist, lifting up the instrument, a microscope. It is not very large, you see, nor is it very powerful, but I want you to look through it. With his cigar lighter, he ignited a short length of wire that burned slowly with a brilliant blue spot of light. In his hand, he held a small piece of stone. I made this microscope, hoping that I might prove with it still more conclusively my original theory of the infinite smallness of human life. For many months I searched into various objects, but without success. Finally, I came upon this bit of rock. The chemist adjusted it carefully under the microscope, with the light shining brilliantly upon it. You see, I have marked one place. I am going to let you look into it there. The doctor stepped forward. As he looked, they heard his quick intake of breath. After a moment, he raised his head. On his face was an expression of awe, too deep for words. He made place for the others and stood silent. When the very young man's turn came, he looked into the eyepiece awkwardly. 
His heart was beating fast. For some reason, he felt frightened. At first, he saw nothing. Keep the other eye open, said the chemist. The very young man did as he was directed. After a moment, there appeared before him a vast stretch of open country. As from a great height, he stared down at the scene spread out below him. Gradually, it became clearer. He saw water with the sunlight, his own kind of sunlight, it seemed, shining upon it. He stared for a moment more, dazzled by the light. Then, nearer to him, he saw a grassy slope that seemed to be on a mountainside above the water. On this slope, he saw animals grazing, and beside them, a man formed like himself. The chemist's voice came to him from far away. We are all of us here in a world that only occupies a portion of one little atom of the gold of a wedding ring. Yet what you see there in that stone... The very young man raised his head. Before him stood the microscope, with its fragment of stone gleaming in the blue light of the burning wire. He wanted to say something to show them how he felt, but no words came. He looked up into the chemist's smiling face and smiled back a little foolishly. Every day I look, said Rio, breaking the silence, and I see wonderful things, but never really can I believe. At this moment there came a violent rapping upon the outer door. As Rio left the room to open it, the very young man picked up the bit of stone that the chemist had just taken from the microscope. I wish, may I keep it, he asked impulsively. The chemist smiled and nodded, and the very young man was about to slip it into the pocket of his robe when Rio hastily re-entered the room, followed by Oteo. The youth was breathing heavily, as though he had been running, and on his face was a frightened look. "'Bad, very bad,' said the old man, in a tone of deep concern, as they came through the doorway. "'What is it, Oteo?' asked the chemist quickly. The boy answered him with a flood of words in his native tongue. The chemist listened quietly. Then he turned to his companions. "'Targo has escaped,' he said briefly. "'They sent word to me at home, and Oteo ran here to tell me.' A crowd broke into the courthouse and released him. Oteo says they went away by water and that no one is following them. The youth, who evidently understood English, added something else in his own language. He says Targo vowed death to all who have the magic power. He spoke in the city just now and promised them deliverance from the giants. Good Lord, murmured the very young man. He has gone to Orlog, probably, the chemist continued. We have nothing to fear for the moment. But that he could speak in the center of Arite after this morning, and that the people would listen. It seems to me things are getting worse every minute, said the big businessman. Oteo spoke again, the chemist translated. The police did nothing. They simply stood and listened, but took no part. Bad, very bad, repeated the old man, shaking his head. What should we do? I confess I cannot tell, said the chemist soberly, but that we should do something drastic is obvious. We can't do anything until Lilda gets back, declared the very young man. We'll see what she has done. 
We might have had to let Targo go anyway. The chemist started towards the door. Tonight, by the time of sleep, Rio, he said to the old man, I expect Lilda will have returned. You had better come to us, then, with Aura. I do not think you should stay here alone to sleep tonight. In a moment, Aura comes, Rio answered. We shall be with you very soon. The chemist motioned to his companions, and with obvious reluctance on the part of the very young man, they left, followed by Oteo. On the way back, the city seemed quiet, abnormally so. The streets were nearly deserted. What few pedestrians they met avoided them or passed them sullenly. They were perhaps halfway back to the chemist's house when the very young man stopped short. I forgot that piece of stone, he explained, looking at them queerly. Go on. I'll be there by the time you are. And disregarding the chemist's admonition that he might get lost, he left them abruptly and walked swiftly back over the way they had come. Without difficulty, for they had made few turns, the very young man located Rio's house. As he approached, he noticed the figure of a man lounging against the further corner of the building. The figure disappeared almost as soon as he saw it. It was a trivial incident, but somehow, to the very young man, it held something in it of impending danger. He did not knock on the outer door, but finding it partly open, he slowly pushed it wider and stepped quietly into the hallway beyond. He was hardly inside when there came from within the house a girl's scream, a cry of horror abruptly stifled. For an instant, the very young man stood hesitating. Then he dashed forward through an open doorway in the direction from which the cry had seemed to come. The room into which he burst was Rio's study, the room he had left only a few moments before. On the floor, almost across his path, lay the old man, with the short blade of a sword buried to the hilt in his breast. In a corner of the room, a young Oroid girl stood with her back against the wall. Her hands were pressed against her mouth, her eyes were wide with terror. Bending over the body on the floor, with a hand in its armpit, knelt the huge gray figure of a man. At the sound of the intruder's entrance, he looked up quickly and sprang to his feet. The very young man saw it was Targo. End of chapter 25